I think if you look at the situation today, I think the environmental groups haven't noticed the changes that have happened in the agriculture community over the decades. Over the decades, there's been a lot more attention to these environmental problems. Welcome to the Case for Conservation podcast, where we explore biodiversity conservation and the environment more broadly and interrogate conventional wisdom for the sake of a more robust case for conservation. I'm your host, Andre Mardo. In decades past, conservation was notorious for ignoring other development goals, like ending hunger and poverty. Things have changed, and there seems to be a tendency even to assume that conservation is compatible with those goals and even necessary to achieve them. There's certainly a lot of truth in that, but has the pendulum swung a bit too far in the other direction? Are we talking enough about the inevitable trade-offs? And if everyone agrees that we should minimize trade-offs, why is the Green Revolution, one of the greatest trade-off minimizers in history, often vilified by environmentalists? In this episode of the Case for Conservation podcast, Prabhu Pingali shares his thoughts on the Green Revolution and more generally on trade-offs between development goals. Prabhu is Professor of Applied Economics at Cornell University, and he's worked in senior positions at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, FAO, CGIAR, and other key development institutions. I began by asking Prabhu to prepare the ground a bit, as it were, to explain what the Green Revolution was and why it was necessary. Let's think back to 1960, when you know there was mass starvation in Asia, especially in India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, etc. And there was a very strong feeling that there was no way to to get these countries to ever be able to feed themselves, and that there was a need for triage. So somehow sacrificing Asia in order for the rest of the world to survive. Mm. And these were real conversations that were happening Mm -hmm. uh, in the policy community in the West. And so the Green Revolution essentially came in that context of massive starvation, massive food deficiencies in very densely populated parts of the world. What the Green Revolution was was a technology that rapidly increased agriculture productivity for the basic staples, the basic staples of rice and wheat and and maize in the case of Latin America. And and you went from one ton per hectare of production to three, four, five tons per hectare. Mm -hmm. And it happened within a very short time period. And the Green Revolution sort of took off by the late 60s. And by 1974, 75, India became self-sufficient in food. Mm-hmm. Uh, China was self-sufficient. And towards the early 80s, Bangladesh became self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. So these were tremendous changes that took place because of the investments that happened in agriculture technology. And the technology itself came from two international research centers. 
uh, one in the Philippines, the International Rice Research Institute, which focused on increasing rice productivity. And the other was um, the International Wheat and Maize Improvement Center in Mexico, mm -hmm. which focused on increasing yields and productivity of wheat and maize crops. That's where Norman Borlaug was based. He's sort of the iconic figure of the Green Revolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, although these were the two places where the research happened, the big early impacts of the Green Revolution were actually in, in India, Indonesia, China, etc. Mm -hmm. So it happened in areas where the need for increasing productivity was the highest rather than the immediate geographies where the research happened. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a nutshell of the Green Revolution. Borlaug is, is uh, always associated with the Green Revolution. Is that fair to, to always talk about Norman Borlaug uh, in relation to the Green Revolution, or were there lots of other people who played a almost as important role? Because uh, at least in my... Um, in my experience, learning about the Green Revolution, that's the name that comes up again and again. Absolutely. That's the name that comes up regularly, um, especially in the Western literature. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and he certainly made the big contribution on wheat, on increasing, uh, improving wheat varieties, semi-dwarf wheat varieties that have higher yields, and he was instrumental in setting up the International Center in Mexico. But the other big names in the Green Revolution, there was um, an Indian uh, scientist, M.S. Swaminathan, who, through his efforts, was able to bring the Green Revolution to, to India. Uh -huh. So M.S. Swaminathan was a young scientist at the Indian Agriculture Research Institute who then realize the potential of bringing these modern materials and adapting them to Indian conditions and then promoting them in India. So he played a huge role in India. And similarly, there would be people in China, Indonesia, that recognized the potential in, and then promoted them on their own. The rice scientists at the International Rice Research Institute played an equally important role as Norman Borlaug did. Mm -hmm. um, but the Nobel Prize and all of that was given to Borlaug. And from there, the Green Revolution was very much associated with him as an individual. But I suspect he would be the first person to say that it was not him alone, that without all of the global partners, mm -hmm. it wouldn't have happened. Right an individual kind of rises to prominence within any kind of movement like that, right? I guess that's just how the public reacts to, to those sort of things. Right. I was also just wondering, you know, it, it seems to have happened fairly quickly, sort of over, over the space of about a decade, you know, from this really desperate situation to something that resembled almost a miracle, you know, uh, just uh, 10 or 15 right. years later. And this is in the days before really GMOs were a thing, right? So so how were the researchers able to bring about such a change in the actual crop varieties so quickly? Was it just that they 
they pooled their efforts because they realized the magnitude of the crisis or you know how, how did they respond as quickly as they did and so i think the the research played a big role and providing the the new varieties patent free without any restrictions for use without any restrictions for distribution uh-huh. etc played a big role and that's certainly a very important part of what happened you know because today if you think of any technology the first thing that happens is people say let's patent it right let's protect the intellectual property whereas uh, the the varieties of wheat and rice that came out were provided freely to everyone uh-huh. and so that played a big role but the other part of it was there was a, a huge amount of political pressure in the countries that were food insecure that were desperately food deficit mm-hmm. to do something about it mm-hmm. and so there was huge political motivation to take on this problem mm-hmm. and you know in india for example pl480 which was the big food aid program uh, that provided food from us to india uh was cut off in uh, the late 60s and so that certainly uh, made india desperate in in terms of searching for an alternative uh-huh. um indonesia was having huge starvation issues etc and so that political pressure then made governments more amenable to saying let's take on this new technology and let's see you know what we can do to make that happen rapidly so in my work i talk about the innovation that took place the infrastructure investments that happened um the incentives that were provided what was put in place in order to to make this uh, technology rapidly disseminated and rapidly adopted across the developing world hmm. without those investments you would not have seen uh, the change happen so it was the technology but then the infrastructure coming in the incentive structure coming in etc uh, so the price policies the input subsidy policies the extension systems that were put in place the credit systems all of this came together and that's Uh, that resulted in the rapid change i can't help being reminded of the the covid vaccines and the way that they came in as quickly as it it's, a, it's an analogous situation i guess i guess one main critique of the green revolution is that although it uh, saved a lot of people and fed a lot of people uh, the technologies or some would say the technologies that kind of came along with the the green revolution polluted and continue to pollute the environment so that's an environmental consequence and then also that they uh, reduced the future potential of land to produce food by polluting so that's actually also sort of a social consequence in the long term as well how accurate is that view of things do you think or is there is there anything to the idea that the green revolution caused more long term harm than good even though it obviously caused a lot of short term good or medium term good perhaps so that's definitely an issue that needs to be discussed when the green revolution was first promoted 
the emphasis was very much on rapidly increasing yields and food supplies. And so in hindsight, one can say, you know, we didn't spend enough time thinking through all of the consequences. And so some of the consequences of providing input subsidies, uh, the consequences of providing price supports in order to promote the production of rice and wheat resulted in high input use, more indiscriminate use of inputs, fertilizers, pesticides, mm-hmm. um, but also water, high levels of water use, etc. And that certainly had environmental impacts. But I think if you look at the situation today, I think the environmental groups haven't noticed the changes that have happened in the agriculture community over the decades. Over the decades, there's been a lot more attention to these environmental problems within the agriculture community. And there's been a lot more attention to smarter farming techniques, being able to produce the same amount of yield with less inputs, being smarter about fertilizer use. Insecticide use, for example, dropped significantly over time for rice and wheat because of improved resistance, resistant varieties that were developed, um, smarter water use technologies that have come in, etc. So there's been a significant amount of effort that's been made to address some of these uh, negative consequences that took place. Mm-hmm. However, my issue is government policy hasn't kept up. Uh-huh. So government policy, which was very much designed to increase the pile of grain, hasn't adjusted to an environment where there is sufficient food. And therefore, one can sort of pull back on some of those subsidies, some of those protections, etc. And even when governments try to do that, you end up in a political economy problem that the beneficiaries of these uh, subsidy programs uh, don't want to see those uh, benefits being removed. So that becomes a political issue. So because of that, the incentives at the farm level to adopt these better technologies have been limited, haven't been as widespread as they could have been. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think the current problem is. And if we can get government policy to provide incentives for better farming technologies, smarter farming technologies, then you would certainly see a a much sharper drop in that trade-off between productivity and sustainability. Right. And is is it mostly subsidies that are that are causing the harm? Is it more than just subsidies or is it really is that the main thing? Well, that would be a big lever to address. The subsidies around inputs, fertilizer specifically, mm-hmm. the subsidy around water. Uh, you know, water is still, irrigation water is almost free or in most parts of the developing world. Mm-hmm. Uh, subsidy around electricity, pumping, groundwater, etc. So these subsidies play a big role um, in reducing the incentives of people, of 
farmers to to take on new technologies. It's kind of a contrast between the the kind of necessity that drove the green revolution in the first place. It's kind of like the opposite, right? Right. Oh, very interesting. Right. And the other thing that's happened um, is that you know today there's a greater demand for diversity of diets, right? Mm -hmm. you, so the per capita consumption of rice and wheat is declining as overall incomes rise and food security improves. And there's greater demand for vegetables, fruit, livestock products, etc. Um, but because the the Green Revolution era policies are still so sticky, countries haven't been able to diversify their food systems to the extent that the consumers are demanding that diversity. And so there's a mismatch between what's being produced and what's being demanded at the consumer level. And again, that's that can be corrected through some of the changes in the policies. Right. You've uh, spoken and written quite a bit about um, smallholder and small-scale farm production, or food production, rather. And among environmentalists or conservationists, perhaps, I think that the popular view is that systems like that, these small-scale systems, are better for people and better for the environment than, um, for lack of a better term, industrial agriculture. Um, generally speaking, is small-scale agriculture or industrial agriculture more nature-friendly? Which of these is more nature-friendly? Because I've, I've heard that small-scale agriculture requires more land per unit output, at least. Um, but I've also heard there's some fairly recent research that seems to suggest uh, something to the contrary. So I was really curious about that. And at the same time, is it the case that, that scale, um, the scale of agriculture is maybe just a red herring and it's more about the technology that's used? Um, yeah, the last statement is absolutely right. I think there's there's really a misconception about small-scale agriculture. Um, the idea that uh, small farms are more environmentally friendly, etc., is very much a, a concept that comes from looking at U.S. farming or European farming, etc. But the Green Revolution happened on small farms. The Green Revolution happened on farms which were less than one hectare. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of China, the Green Revolution happened on farms which were one-tenth of a hectare, right? So it was very much a small farm revolution that took place. There were no large, massive farms in India or China at that time. So those small-scale farms, were they subsistence farms or were they producing for the area? Or were they, was it sort of on a family basis or a village basis? or What kind of scale was that really happening? They at? were, in, in the case of India, they were all subsistence farms. Okay. They were all producing essentially for themselves. Mm. But once the Green Revolution came in and you were able to go from one ton to three to five tons and you were able to grow a second crop on the same land within the year then that led to a big surplus within the small farm right and that led to increased market mm -hmm. sales mm -hmm. and improved incomes etc so the market infrastructure is a really important component here 
mm-hmm. because once the market infrastructure was developed, this surplus was able to be uh, sent off the farm. And so I think that that idea that somehow if you had small farms, you would have a different system, you'd have a more sustainable system is not really true. It may be true in some contexts, mm-hmm. but if you look at the densely populated parts of the world, especially around Asia, much of this revolution happened in small farms. The other issue is on land and whether you need more land or less land. So it turns out if you look at the total area under forests, now you would expect that as populations increase, as the demand for food increases, then the the forested area or the non-cultivated area will begin to decline over time. But if you look at the data for India, China, Indonesia, Vietnam, etc., you find that the forest area has actually remained stable and all, has also increased. Mm-hmm. And and one of the reasons for that is you could increase overall production by keeping the land area constant, the cultivated area constant, mm-hmm. by being able to increase productivity per unit area but also increasing the number of crops that were grown on mm-hmm. the same land. And so there were significant benefits in terms of land saving uh, that came out of the Green Revolution that I think the conservation community doesn't really uh, give credit. Right. Perhaps just to move on a little bit, one of my my favorite uh, topics and one that we've, we've touched on already is this idea of trade-offs. And I think in my field, the sort of conservation field, discussions focus on synergies. So synergies are the other side of the coin, right? And right. you always hear about synergies and trade-offs, but then that's kind of the title of the presentation or the lecture or the uh, whatever it is. Um, and then 99% of it is about synergies and the trade-offs part is just kind of pushed to one side. Um, and I find this enormously frustrating because I think that uh, if we don't talk about trade-offs, then uh, we're not going to make any progress. So in this case, I'm thinking about trade-offs between biodiversity conservation and other development goals, but uh, we can talk a bit more more broadly than that. But my impression is that uh, many of my peers have a somewhat utopian view of a world in which food provision and biodiversity protection are completely compatible goals that can be achieved without uh, trade-offs. And I think I know what your answer is, but what's your view on that? And do you think that the the Green Revolution was uh, perhaps a relatively successful endeavor in minimizing those uh, those trade-offs on, on a fairly large scale? Well, if you look at the land that would have been brought into production if the Green Revolution did not happen, and the biodiversity implications of that, relative to where we are today, that because you're concentrating production on a limited area and releasing other land into forest and non-cultivated systems, Mm -hmm. uh, the biodiversity difference is quite significant. I mean, the biodiversity trade-off would have been enormous if the Green Revolution did not happen. But this doesn't mean that you did not see biodiversity consequences in the areas that were cultivated, Mm -hmm. because you did see loss of species, you did see 
loss of traditional varieties of staples and loss of other crops that were grown in that area, loss of wildlife in those rice paddies, etc. So there's been significant amount of biodiversity loss. But I would say that loss would have happened irrespective of the Green Revolution because the need to keep producing food would have been there. One way or the other, one would have had to address that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been, um, it's maybe I'm, I'm a little bit out of touch with the research, but there, there has over the past 10 or maybe 15 years been a debate in the conservation literature about whether land sparing or land sharing is a better way of uh, conserving with land sparing being the idea that you're talking about sort of, you know, intensive um, land use, especially agriculture, and then leaving the rest for nature. And then land sharing, which I think is more the kind of utopian environmentalist idea of things, you know, nature and, um, and human use are completely combined and in harmony with each other. Um, But the research seems to have landed on land sparing being the better option of those two. So it sounds like that's what you're corroborating there yeah that's what i would go uh, with and and remember much of the food produced today is not consumed on the farm it's consumed in urban systems so even small farms are connecting to markets and producing for the market Mm -hmm. and in order to be profitable one would need to be more efficient in the production system so that would then definitely lead to that trade-off of what you can do beyond just the production on your farm. Right. So obviously, I mean, all that said, the, the Green Revolution was um, was obviously not uh, perfect. And I've seen, again, in some of your writings that you've argued, uh, including the PNAS paper back in 2012. So I'm quite keen to know how things have changed since then as well. But you were kind of arguing for a, a new Green Revolution. And I guess maybe um, this goes back a little bit to what you were saying earlier on about policy and the need for policy reform, right. uh, but I don't want to preempt your answer there. Uh, do you think that that new Green Revolution is happening yet? And what are the ways in which we can do it better this time around? Um, it's not happening as fast as one would want it to happen. Mm-hmm. But I think the trends are moving in that direction. Uh, if I think about what a green, new green revolution would look like, um, it would be a more diversified production system mm-hmm. where you're not just focused on uh, a couple of staples, but looking more broadly at a diverse food system and much more efficient use of inputs, smarter use of fertilizers, uh, including non-chemical fertilizers, um, much smarter use of water and and land uh, land use in a way that promotes long-term soil fertility, etc. I think that would be the way I would think about a new a green revolution. It's happening in areas where the market demand for diversity is driving uh, some of that change. Mm-hmm. Right, so moving out the staples into vegetable production, etc., um, has driven some of the change um, we're beginning to see. In some countries, there's uh, policy change that's gradually happening, moving away from 
a focus on staples. But every time you see this happening, there's a new shock to the system, which then gets governments back to their old way of thinking. Okay. So look at what happened just now with uh, with the Ukraine crisis and and the you know the disruption to wheat exports, and then India banning rice exports. So now everybody is back to saying, "Oh, we need more staple food." Mm. And so once that crisis passes, then people come back to saying, "Oh, let's promote that industry." And, and so there's this sort of knee-jerk reactions that keep happening because of these shocks that periodically come into the to the food system. Right. So I think that's something we can look at. But the most positive area where I see change happening is there's a lot more attention to climate mitigation in food systems. So mm-hmm. How can food systems be more climate friendly? Uh, reduce emissions coming out of rice production, livestock production, etc. And trying to reduce that trade-off between productivity increase and greenhouse gas emissions. Now, that's an area where there's a lot more government policy attention today, uh-huh. especially from the environmental ministries in many countries. Hmm. And and I'm becoming increasingly positive that that attention to reducing the climate trade-offs may be a new pathway to getting to a more mm. sustainable and smarter agriculture system. Yeah. My hypothesis, I'm working with a few states in India on that, and there's a lot of interest in moving in that direction. We'll see in a few years how this turns out. Right. Okay. Something I probably should have asked you earlier on is just to kind of maybe briefly define what a staple is. You know, m- my idea is that so they're mostly grass family crops. Um, they're carbohydrates. They're fast growing and fast producing. Is that all more or less correct? Or? Yeah. So usually an annual crop that's your primary source of calories within the family. You know, in, in popular vernacular, when we we talk about staple grains, it's people immediately think of rice, wheat, and maize. But quite often staples would include millets and sorghum, cassava and tubers and bananas, etc., depending on where you are in in the world. Right. But when you're talking about diversification of crops, do you mean diversification away from these kind of carbohydrates or or are you talking uh, yeah, what, what do you mean specifically? I'm I'm thinking of both. I'm thinking of moving from a predominant focus on rice and wheat to a broader staple focus, looking at millets, uh, bringing millets into the food system, for example, which have much higher nutritive value than rice and wheat. But at the same time, looking at growing protein-rich crops such as uh, beans and pulses, et cetera, mm-hmm. and vegetables with more nutrient-rich uh, crops, such as vegetables. Mm-hmm. And then, then looking at livestock production systems, both dairy and meat production systems, and then 
the feed that goes into that. So when you think about diversity of the food system, you're looking across all of these areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I guess also we've spoken about biodiversity a few times in the context of kind of traditional idea of species and ecosystem biodiversity, but you've also spoken a lot about genetic biodiversity, right? So even within crops, that's, that's an important aspect as well. Absolutely. Is there any, or do you know of any kind of correlation between the wealth of a country or a, an area and the degree to which they've managed to diversify? Because I'm thinking, you know, um, Africa remains by far the poorest part of the world. And um, in the time that Asia has made some enormous progress, um, Africa is still struggling in so many areas. Um, so is, is there any is there any kind of correlation there between so maybe more generally the way that different regions have embraced the green revolution and kind of adapted to their circumstances and you know the general sort of development of of those parts of the world? That's an interesting question. Um, certainly, as the a country's wealth increases, the demand for a more diverse diet also goes up. Mm-hmm urbanization also goes up and as a result you would expect to see a response from the farm level in terms of what's produced to meet the market needs and so to that extent you do see increased diversity happening i mean think about what where japan is today Uh, japan has a much much more diverse food system than it had 50 years ago because overall demand for diversity has increased and you see similar trends in China, you see it in Indonesia, etc. You don't see as much in Africa, but I think in Africa the issue has been very much around first when the Green Revolution first took place, it took place in areas where land scarcity was highest. So these were areas where population densities were really high. Which is Asia essentially. That was Asia. At that time, Africa did not have that issue. Mm -hmm. Today, many parts of Africa are in a similar situation where Asia was in the 60s and 70s. So you're seeing much more of a demand for land-saving technologies today in Africa than you did at the start of the Green Revolution. So you're beginning to see increasing productivity in maize, in wheat, uh, in millets, etc., happening in Africa. So that renaissance, I think, is happening now. And we'll see that trend moving forward. But it also requires massive amounts of investments in roads, transport infrastructure, market infrastructure, etc. Right. right. But the other problem I think Africa is facing is much of the populations are based on, on the coasts. Uh, and urban populations are based on the coast. And so it's become easier to meet the food security needs of urban populations in Africa through trade, oh, okay. through imports of food, mm-hmm. because the infrastructure investments have been relatively low. So it's cheaper to bring food from outside than from within the country into urban centers in Africa. And that has had a disincentive on promoting a more diverse production system or a more competitive production system within the country itself. And that can only be corrected through massive infrastructure investments in country. 
And um, just one last thing, perhaps, that I was wondering about was um, I don't, and this may, may again just be a reflection of my lack of knowledge on, on the topic, but I haven't heard GMOs associated very much with the Green Revolution. And of course, the Green Revolution kind of happened before GMOs really happened. Right. But over the development of the Green Revolution and and into the future, what's your view of the, the role of GMOs in this um, Green Revolution 2.0 that we've been talking about? I think GMO happened much later, uh, around 2000. And so by then, the Green Revolution had come and established and gone in a way. They, they were very much in the post-post-Green Revolution period by then. And the GMO technologies that came in initially were essentially for a very few crops, cotton, corn, canola, soybean. Those were the only crops that a large part of the GMO revolution was on. And these were very much industrial crops. They were not food crops, except corn, but much of the corn was for, for feed and for industrial processing. Mm-hmm. There wasn't that much investment in GM technologies for rice and wheat, essentially because these were uh, self-pollinating crops and and you couldn't capture the patent protection when you have self-pollinating crops. So the private sector investments in these crops were limited. The public sector didn't really step up and bring in GM into these crops. Mm -hmm. The one exception was golden rice, you know, where uh, vitamin A enhanced rice. Um, That was developed about the same time in 2000, but it never took off. There was no investment in promoting it. And so that was the only exception. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think today the opportunities are much more in genomics rather than GM technology, you know, uh, using genomics for smarter breeding, using gene mapping, gene editing technologies, etc. And I think that's where we're going to see future crop improvements, you know, especially around improved nutrition, improved resistance to pests and disease, drought tolerance, etc. So I think we're in that post-GM period, where the science itself has moved beyond just the engineering of the gene. Right, right. I have uh, had quite a lot of involvement with um, these multilateral environmental agreements, like the Convention on Biological Diversity. Um, Do you, I mean, without focusing necessarily on any particular one, but do you think that these international agreements and assemblies have a role to play because I think that you know, as you were saying earlier on, there does seem to be a disconnect between the agricultural realm and the and the biodiversity realm and, and others as well. Um, my perception is that as long as they stay in silos, they're going to struggle to to really come to any solutions and to encourage governments in the right direction. That's exactly the point. You know, if you have a meeting in the convention on biodiversity. Environmental ministry people show up. If you have a meeting on 
hunger, zero hunger, then the ag ministry people show mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. But there's never any discussion between the two groups. So the convergence at the national level is very limited. And so I think that's been a big challenge in in all of these agencies, uh, all of these big groups. I used to be director for economics at FAO, and I would sit through many of these meetings, and it was always kind of frustrating to see that people were talking to themselves. It wasn't very much like reaching out to other communities and trying to bring about a conversion among other communities to address these issues. But on the optimistic side, I think that climate discussions are bringing in a lot more disparate groups together. And I think that may be where we may see more convergence. Next time, the Case for Conservation podcast will host a return guest for the first time. Back in June 2021, in one of the most popular episodes so far, Adam Veltz spoke with me about performative conservation and why it's harmful. Adam has in the meantime finished a book that he's been working on for the past few years about the effects of climate change on biodiversity. I'll be asking him to explain the gist of the book as well as pushing back a bit on some of the ideas within it. Please join us.